Welcome to the Normal Birth Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Whipple. Today's episode is an interview with special guest Jessica Johnston, a midwife from Anchorage, Alaska. Jessica is the Director of Development for the Pacific Birth Institute, where they train doulas and birth assistants in complication and routine care management techniques, so they can excel at supporting nurse and community midwives at home and birth center births. We'll dive into her roots and her practice in the second half of the interview, where she shares some valuable and entertaining discussion of the state of birth in the United States. But first, we're going to talk about Jessica's own labor and delivery stories. She has graciously shared a video of her second birth, from which I'm about to share some sound bites. Be forewarned, this podcast is not suitable for children. There is strong language included, so if you have little ears around that you prefer to shield, right now is a good time to hit pause. So do you want me to just start off? You want me to introduce myself? Yeah, go ahead. Kind of thing? Okay, cool. All right. So hi, I am Jessica Johnson. I'm a certified professional midwife. So I do home birth in Alaska. Um, but we're going to start with my birth stories. So yes, I can talk about my birth stories. I am a mom. Um, I have two kiddos. I have an 11 year old son and I have a four year old daughter, Asher and Lucy are their names. And I actually, yeah, I love, I love chatting about birth stories because it's always so intriguing. So I lucked out in the state of Alaska, midwifery is big, right? So we have a 7% out of hospital birth rate. So we have seven times the national average. And in one portion of Alaska, about 30 miles north of Anchorage in the Matsu Valley, it is one in five babies are born in a birth center or mostly at home. It's 20% in the valley. So Alaska has a really strong midwifery presence. Mm -hmm. Um, And luckily I was in my, I was 27 when I got pregnant with my son. I was also um, teaching prenatal yoga at that time. Um, I was taking a conscious pregnancy workshop. So pregnancy midwifery actually had started to creep in a little bit at that time. So of course I got pregnant and I was like, of course I'm going for a midwife, right? But I was a first time mom and I was like, I don't know if I want to do a home birth. I think I'll do a birth center because it felt like this safer ground, which is kind of hilarious because statistically it's less that you're going to have less out, less vaginal birth outcomes in a birth center as a first time mom than a home birth. Funny enough, just so you know, (laughs) but I didn't know that data. Right. So it felt like that good middle ground for me. And, um, my first pregnancy It was, I mean, honestly, I didn't have really too many issues. I had swelling. I had some carpal tunnel stuff that really bugged me, but um, I was still doing yoga. I was still inverting up until the third trimester. So I was, and I was a server. So at that time I wasn't a midwife. I was a, I was a server at a brewery. And so I was walking five, 10 miles a day. Um, But, and my son, he cooked till 42 weeks, even. Ooh. (laughs) longest two weeks of my life as a first time mom, right? Especially yeah. were you, yeah. Were you working that whole me. time? Go ahead. Were you working that whole time? I stopped working in my 40 to 41st week. Okay. At that point, I'll tell you what, I was not as savvy about eating as well as I could. As much as I was a pretty healthy eater, I didn't realize the protein needs of pregnancy to help reduce swelling. I didn't, I didn't know a lot of this, like the diet stuff that could help me with swelling. So by the end of my work shifts, my shoes would have like loaves of bread baking out of them. My, my ankles would be so swollen. It was like, I gotta go. Yeah. I can't do this. So I went to 42 weeks. I did everything in that 41st week. Talk about it. I did a fully bulb catheter to four centimeters. 
It didn't, I didn't go into labor for three more days. I did acupuncture. I did all my chiropractic, of course. I did moxa. I don't know if I did moxibustion because I had, my son had been breech at 36 weeks. So I got him flipped really quick with a chiropractor with Webster technique. So I yeah. highly recommend that. Um, but at that point, I was doing everything to try to get him out. My midwife, uh, he was born on a Saturday at noon. My midwife on Friday, I had seen her in the clinic and she's like, you need to go have a date with your husband. We weren't married. I'm sorry. My boyfriend at that time, we weren't married at the time. <laughs> You need to go have a date. You need to go relax. So we went to see Bridesmaids, which was hilarious. Of course, it's a good movie to watch. And uh, and then she's like, you're going to go have a good meal. And then you're going to go home. Because if I had not gone in, if I was not in active labor by midnight on the end of that day that he was born, mm -hmm. I was going to get wrist out to the hospital for potential in induction, right? Okay. Because you can't deliver past 42 weeks in a birth center in Alaska. Yeah. And so here I'm 41 weeks, six days crying, right? So sad. Okay, I'll go watch a movie with my husband and I'll drink all this castor oil and this Sprite so my stomach doesn't get sick, you know? <laughs> and so I drink all this, I drink like a quarter cup of castor oil. Oh, <laughs> okay. Right? Like I drink a lot of castor oil. Okay, so check this out. I drink castor oil. I lay down, I fall asleep almost immediately. I'm 42 weeks pregnant. So I wake up in like a half hour. Mm -hmm. to pee and my water breaks so my labor starts and the casserole hasn't kicked in oh fuck oh god so you know here <laughs> now I'm like oh game on right and yeah. so um yeah so um but so I was at home um I was GBS positive with my son okay and I and I had I hadn't really been given the consent talk by those midwives of choosing of active versus expectant management of GBS, which is when you do antibiotics, if you choose them instead of always actively doing them. Yes. So I was, so I was kind of in an active management situation where they're like, if your water breaks, you got to come in and start antibiotics. So I woke okay. up to my water breaking. Okay. And I was like, oh, okay, well I've got, and, but my labor hadn't really started. Yeah. Which actually is like less than 4% of the time, just so you know that your water breaks before labor starts. It's really yeah. rare. And, and it happened for both my babies. So that's my own body, my like <laughs> stuff, you know, whatever. But um, so um, I went in at 4 a.m. I got a dose of antibiotics. Labor was starting to pick up at 8 a.m. I go in and I am like, I mean, my labor, once it started, it was never more than three or four minutes apart contractions. Boom, 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 boom. I go in at 8 a.m. And, and I'm like, give me, and I've been vomiting the whole time. And now, yeah. of course, casserole, casserole kicked in. So yeah. I'm both ends in the bathroom in my house. Yeah. I went to the birth center, got antibiotics, came back home. Because, you know, they're like, she's a first time mom, a yoga teacher at 42 weeks, an anxious mess. She's got three <laughs> days, right? Like I can see in their minds, like yeah. this chick is neurotic because I was pretty neurotic, right? <laughs> That's why we have children. They break us. Um, and so I, and so I go in at 8 a.m. and I've been vomiting. And so I'm like, please put the antibiotics in a larger bag. And I have her like put a whole bag of fluid in me, okay. which was awesome because I needed the IV hydration at that time. And I'm just shaking. Like I am in full labor, right? I go home and I'm like, I don't know if I should even go home. I'm just like, and of course my, you know, my boyfriend now husband, my boyfriend's like, it's just him. I didn't even have a doula. This is 2011, right? So this yeah. isn't even like doulas, I mean, are kind of things, but not really like, at least in Alaska, we didn't have as many. Yeah. And um, so we go back home and I, within an hour, I was in full transition and I was on the toilet. I was on the toilet 
for over an hour and my husband's, my, my boyfriend's looking at me, he's like, I need you to breathe with me. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> like I was pushing for an hour at home. I went so rapidly through labor. Yeah. I called, and my, and he looks at me, he's like, I think we should go. This is 11 AM, right? My yeah. water broke at 3 AM, 3 AM, 4 AM I'm in for antibiotics. 8 a.m. in for antibiotics, 11 a.m. I'm sitting on the toilet pushing. Like I, but I am not a midw- midwife at that time. I'm, you know, I have not been to births at that time. Yeah. I have no idea. I took a childbirth class, but I didn't know I was pushing. Like yeah. I had, my body's just in it. Right. And so we get, so we call my mom because she was, we wanted her to sleep because it t- could take days. Right. Yeah. So we hadn't called her yet. <laughs> so we call my mom and we're like, meet us at the birth center. We get to the birth center at like 1130. The midwife isn't even there yet. I'm in the parking lot like, oh God, the drive was 10, 15 minutes. Oh, I could barely sit down. It was back-to-back contractions like, oh God. I get to the birth center. She's like, well, let's check you. I like, she's doubting me, but I can tell she's not doubting me all of a sudden. All of a sudden yeah. she's like, shit. Whoa, wait a second. Get in there. She goes to check me. She goes like this far in. She's like, oh, okay. Yeah, let's just go have your baby. I walk right into the birth room. I grab the edge of the bed and I'm like, I squat down. She's like, you're going to blow yourself out. Get on your side. Do not try to squat this baby. Cause I was like, fuck it. We can go like, let's yeah. do it. Push, push, push. Um, so I got up on my sides and thankfully that was good. I didn't tear, you know, um, I had him out at 1208. It was like, got there. Wow. He was out at 1208. Like I was home at 3 PM. Right now I have a baby. What? <laughs> you know, I just took casserole 15 hours ago. What happened? Um, so it, <laughs> my firstborn, uh, my first birth experience was like nine hours, start to finish 42 weeks in gestation. Yeah. My second baby, I was a midwife apprentice. I was in the last year of my apprenticeship. So my daughter attended almost 40 births in my belly. I was really busy at that time in my yeah. last year of apprenticeship. And um, she went to 39 and one. So she, she came almost three weeks earlier than my son did. And she was three ounces heavier. <laughs> so I grew her faster, um, which uh, thank God, because I did not want to go to 42 weeks again. But the nice thing about going to 42 weeks the first time is that you just expect to go late. Yeah. Like you're like due date, schmu date, like yeah. about the end of November, right? Like she was due <laughs> the 25th. I'm like, nah, early December, maybe, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so, but with hers, my water broke on Saturday. I woke up 10 AM, um, like woke up and at 10 AM, my water broke while I was awake. And I was like, okay, okay, cool. My water broke. Let my midwife know. Um, and just was like, okay, labor's going to kick in. Nope. No, no, it didn't. Not for a while. What, it, what happened was, is I 10 AM it broke. I was like, okay, I'm going to rest, right? Like labor's going to kick off. I'm going to rest. And if I had nine hour first labor, I, I don't expect it to go longer. Right. Like, yeah. which means when it happens, it's going to happen. Like it did last time. It's going to hit the gate running. Yeah. I'm going to be like in it immediately. Um, and my late, like all day, I went to the store. Finally, I tried taking another nap, couldn't, went to the store, walked around. I've got a depends on to catch all this liquid that's just coming out of me, right? I'm <laughs> drinking water to try to replace it. I'm wearing a diaper and a big dress, you know, like just to kind of cover my diaper. And, um, and yeah, and so that night I'm watching Future Man, which was such a great show. I'm watching Future Man while I'm on a pump cycle. 20 minute shows are great for when you're trying to induce labor. So yeah. I'm like, 
it's like 8 p.m. I've got to start getting the show on the road. I you don't want to be ruptured that long, right? Like yeah, baby time body, but we're coming into nighttime. Like, and now I've got no like the fluids lower. This baby's sitting low, right? I could feel yeah. her. Um, let's go, right? And so for 20 minutes on, 20 minutes off, taking my herbs, you know, and like watching yeah. episodes of Future Man, like a whole season of it, right? Getting contractions kind of going, and then they just die off. And I was like, Okay. So the midwife I'm apprenticing under at the time is the midwife that came to attend when I delivered. And so she comes over at like 11 PM and she's like, she's like, let's just check your, like, let's do a cervical exam. Let's get you like pretty much like a midwife to midwife. Let's rough it up. Yeah. Let's stir this into something like what's going on. Right. And so I was six centimeters dilated. I had not had a contraction yet. Okay. okay. I love this. I love yeah. this. I love this about second time moms. I also do specific herbs and stuff when I'm pregnant and my clients do it too. Cause I don't mess around. We want to be an active labor before we feel anything. Yes. Right. Yes. And so I'm six centimeters happy to hear, it, but she's like, but your baby is high. Okay. Your baby's not dropping and a cervix won't go past six centimeters without mechanical dilation. Without oh. the pressure of the fetal head to continue the dilation and effacement of the cervix. And so I've got a baby big old ready to go cervix, right? And a baby head hovering right above it. So even the little bits of contractions, I wasn't getting enough down to get my labor started, right? Yeah. So so my midwife, Jen, she gives me a vigorous, like, let's sweep it open, like, and let's see if we can get you back on the pump. Let's get baby down. So I do a little bit more pump action at that time. And then I'm like, fuck it, I got to go to bed because I can't be tired, right? Yeah. it's It's getting later at this point. And so I lay down at two and I wake up at four to a contraction. Like, okay. Because I've been laying on my side. So baby had time to kind of, yeah. come on down. I wake up, I, it was probably actually about three 30. And I remember I got up to go pee and I was like, okay. And I had a contraction, right. When I stood up and I had a contraction on the toilet as I peed. Right. I was like, okay. And it was like by four, I was like, I think we should call the, I think we should call somebody because <laughs> it like immediately started kicking in like I had before, but now I had help right now. I yeah. knew I had a midwife in attendance and her assistant. And I had another apprentice midwife who had been a doula for like, like 10 years. So yeah. she was coming to doula me, uh, you know, I was like, all hands on deck because by four 30, it was rip roaring. Like I was just, yeah. you know, uh, Rachel, my doula walked in. She's like, can I help you? I was like, yeah, right. because <laughs> what had ended up happening, my baby was so high, my daughter, because she was wrapped in a bandolier cord. And what that means is from her umbilicus. So her cord came up and around and it came up over her shoulder, behind her back, down her waist, and it had tied around her leg. So she had gotten wrapped up and kind of held up in my uterus by her cord. And so she had been in this persistent, what's called right occiput transverse um, orientation. She'd been really deep in my right side. Uh And what happens when babies get really in the right side is they will do what's called a long arc of rotation and you get back labor. It's where the baby actually spins all the way around to come down instead of just turning forward to come down. They do a whole circle back. And most babies, if they hit that ROT position or more, they're going to make that long arc. So as she's coming down with my uterus, like with my uterus contracting her head, everything was just grinding against my pelvis because she was so tied up. And the way she was coming down, it was just excruciating. So my nine hour labor with my son, nine hours intense, nowhere near as excruciating as my daughter. Whereas like by four, four 30, I'm in full blown labor. And she was out at seven Oh six. Yeah. So less than three hours, boom, I had a baby because my body was like, 
we got to get this thing out. Oh, yeah. She's so tied up. So it was like this uterine force. It was insanity. Um, And then I sent you my birth video. You can share that with anybody who wants to see. You can see how what it looks like to push a baby out in less than five minutes. Because that video starts with my first push. Yeah. That's my first contraction that I wanted to push on. Yeah. And my husband's like, oh, we should start videotaping now. Yeah. No, it, it starts. And, and I mean, the first thing out of your mouth is, oh, fuck. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really what that feels like. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. As a midwife, you know, it's the best sound. It's like, oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> this is what this is the money of the job. Let's make sure everybody doesn't die. Let's make sure everybody survives childbirth right from now until that baby's latched on and mom's not bleeding. This is the this is that time we all train for right there, right? Yeah. Um, and so my daughter, when she came out, she did need resuscitation. My son, when he came out, needed no resuscitation at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I delivered my son on my side in bed at a birth center. I delivered my daughter on hands and knees in the birth tub in my bedroom at home. So I had an okay. inflatable tub there, delivered her in tub there. Um, but when she came out, she didn't want to breathe. And because she came out so fast, this mm-hmm. happens sometimes with stunned babies, especially if they're really tied up and then they come out really quick, they just get a little too much cord compression. Sometimes they get a little too much CO2 buildup and it's like getting that respiratory inspiration effort going. Oh, one in 10 babies need it. We, one in 10 babies need help breathing when they're yeah. born. And it's just really, it's kind of a gas issue that we're really, we're venting lungs a lot of the time. Like in this instance with my daughter, right? She had when babies get a little too squeezed for too long, when they have a little too long without breathing, they get into the, and pushing is tight, right? Like they are very tight in there. They're not getting as much restitution um, of the placental perfusion while they're being pushed out. Yeah. So um, when they come out, babies can just have a little too much CO2 in their blood. And so their lungs, they won't want to inflate. It's intriguing. And so what you have to do is you have to vent that with either mouth to mouth, or you have to use a baby face mask and give the little puffs of air to ventilate the lungs. Because remember, their lungs haven't been oxygenating blood. Yeah. So they've never used them for this. And there are cool ducts in the heart. There's a cool duct in the heart that closes when a baby is born and <gasps> takes a big breath that helps to shunt the blood through the lungs. So they're like, oh, the umbilical cord's gone. Sweet. So we live if we breathe. Okay. Okay. And once that (laughs) gas is established, once that gas, that blood gas is changed and they have the ventilation in the lungs, babies are super resilient and kick right off. And so my daughter ended up getting about, I think eight rescue breaths. Um, and she was, she was starting to be responsive. Her heart rate was never below hundred beats per minute, which is a good indication. Her placenta was intact the whole time too. So we didn't cut the cord while we were doing any of the resuscitation efforts. So she actually just took a minute to vent open and turn around. And then she was, and she totally (laughs) freaked out. It was great. So So being a professional in that situation, were you, do you feel like you were more or less anxious watching your daughter be resuscitated than a a patient who maybe didn't have the kind of education you have? I was less anxious. Yeah, I was because I was also attended by the team I had been working with longest. So I had seen and run resuscitations with all of them. And so what was nice, I'll say this, and this is always what I want to tell people, like you, you have to receive care in these, in these stages, no matter your roles, right? Like I'm a midwife, but 
midwifing myself is antithetical to the midwifery model of care. Hmm. It is right and good that everyone receive the support they need at every life stage, right? Especially midwives giving birth to their own babies. Now that's not to say there aren't some midwives out there that do unassisted birth for their own selves. Mm-hmm. Not me, because when my baby came out, when this nine pound bowling ball of a daughter came out, right? After five minutes of pushing, I was just, there's these, this moment a lot of women go into liminally, like after birth, that this space of like, I, I, I don't even know if I, I, I knew I, I was allowed to be in my own space enough because I had so much support. If I had tried, if I had tried to straddle the worlds of taking my first breaths after giving birth and trying to do that, I would have hurt my own process, but yeah. no, I was not nervous about the resuscitation probably because I was half in my body still. Yeah. <laughs> but also because I had worked resuscitations with these women before and I, they knew exactly what they were doing. And also I knew I could feel her heartbeat. Like when I picked up my daughter, I could feel her heartbeat. Her tone was a little lower. She was want, she needed some assistance. It wasn't just because we were working on her feet and everything, but um, no, I wasn't, it was, if I had been a first time mom had never seen that, that probably would have scared the shit out of me, right? Half our jobs as midwives is being very calm in those situations to not scare anyone, but to explain as we're going through things like, we're going to help baby breathe. We're going to do this right. And keep them informed. Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, what inspired you to do a home birth, a home water birth, um, having not done that for your, for your first child? Oh my God. I wish I could go back and have a home birth for my first one. I almost did. So let's (laughs) just be honest. Thank God I ended up getting to the birth center. So I had attendance, right? Yeah. Um, big things about water and home birth. I'll say for Alaska, I can't say this for everywhere because I really don't know um, for everywhere, but in Alaska, our home birth and our birth center birth regulations are the same when it comes to safety supplies. Okay. So as a home birth midwife, whether I go to attend or backup midwives who are working in birth centers or I'm attending a home birth, I'm bringing the same drugs, the same oxygen, the same like tubs, right? Inflatable tubs for the home, tubs in the birth center. Um, so, uh, and EMS response time in Anchorage is pretty good too as an urban area. So there was not a like location of service was not a detriment for yeah. me, right? If you live really far out, a home birth versus a birth center birth can be its own choice as well. Some people don't want to be far away from emergency services because they don't feel comfortable with that right? Some people do. And because they have babies and they know how, and they've been doing it and that's their thing. Right. Um, but if I could go back in time, I would have had a home birth for my first. It is, if you desire a home birth, if you desire a home birth mm-hmm. and you stay low risk and whatever criteria that really can look like for you and your provider, right. Yeah. Um, your odds of vaginal delivery are so high. First time mom's transfer out of the hospital or out of the home birth scenario or community birth scenario, birth center scenario, about 30% of the time. Okay. Because of maternal exhaustion, epidurals, actually pretty much non-emergent, non-scary stuff is the biggest reason for first time mom transfer. It took too long. Labor didn't start after water breaking, you know, water breaks prematurely, all sorts of stuff. Um, But those clients specifically that choose home birth um, and birth center, they're both great but you get better odds with home birth if for the for an actual vaginal delivery in place in your home over birth center but both birth center and home birth 
If you choose those locations and something happens and you have to go to hospital, your odds of vaginal delivery, just by choosing community birth as your starting place, your yeah. odds of vaginal delivery are 90%. And that is what we have to start looking at community health-wise, is that if you stratify low risk, low risk, like if you start looking at community service so that we don't over intervene on birth, right? But we offer everyone the options they need and we encourage utilization of community birth services as much as possible and cover it, right? Cover home birth as much as we cover hospital birth, have these real big incentives for it. We actually will preserve vaginal birth lineage way more in the country, which is really, it's imperative right now with cesarean rate that we stop yeah. having as many cesareans as possible, right? And that we actually back down from how many we have been having. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I, I like to say that to everybody. Like, actually, if you really, like, it's also this question too for first time moms. So uh, this is one way to think about it. When you need to get your teeth cleaned, just mm -hmm. a routine teeth cleaning, normal life event, do you go to an oral surgeon or do you go to a dental hygienist? Yeah. And we need to look at birth that way too. Okay. Like people, I mean, there's almost 8 billion people. It does work. Yeah. It does work. Right. It works more often than not. And if you want, if you, if you are a first time mom and you say in the same breath, in the same sentence, I'm going to go to an OB for a natural vaginal birth. And I'm, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say, why would a surgeon be trained in vaginal birth? Yeah. No offense. Like, and I'm, I don't think you're wrong to think they should be able to help you because the entire capitalistic model has moved towards OB led birth. Yeah. But why would they be able to help you? Can I, can I cut your baby out as a midwife? Yeah. Is that my scope of care? No. Is it an OB scope of care to sit with you in continuous labor support, <laughs> making sure you feel good as you get from six to seven to eight centimeters when you're saying I can't do it? Yes. Is the OB going to sit there and tell you, yes, you can? No. That's a surgeon. <laughs> Why would a surgeon do that? Yeah. So I, I try to let people, I try to get people a little bit more on board with the logic of it, right? Like if you want if you want medicated delivery, induction, if you, all of those things have really good place. If you need them, they have really good place. Mm -hmm. If you want, I had a good girlfriend of mine. She had a, a horrible long first labor, tiny pelvis, baby was posterior, horrible situation, right? First labor ended up with cesarean. Yeah. She didn't like it, um, but she, whatever. But she's like, I'm not even going to go into labor next time. I'm getting that baby immediately cut out. And I was like, I hear you. Yeah. I was with her for that first experience. And for her, I, I, I agree. And people would say, oh no, the baby needs the simulation of labor. I was like, yeah, well, I can tell you what happened traumatically to that mom with the stimulation of labor. And we need to start weighing what the, we're talking about when we yeah. say this, right? Um, because it is, it's aligning scope, it's aligning location, it's aligning what you want for your birth, aligning what your safety feels like in birth. Yes. And so many people, when we talk about normal and natural and safe, you get so many different inputs on what that really means. And I'm like, I'll tell you one thing, becoming a home birth midwife, I was way crunchier before I was a midwife. <laughs> Just going to say it. I'm going to say it. I was way crunchier before becoming a midwife and working with women where they're at. Yeah. Right. With women where they're at, because if you have somebody with extensive sexual trauma history, and they really want a vaginal birth. Do you know one of the consent conversations I have with them is? What's that? If you have an extensive sexual trauma history and you want a vaginal birth, an epidural may be one of your best parts of your plan. Oh, but I want natural birth. Do you want natural? 
or do you want vaginal? Yeah. Doesn't mean that these clients can't have natural and vaginal. Right. But we do know that labor can start to arrest at certain points mm-hmm. in clients who have history of sexual trauma. Okay. Especially six centimeters, four, six, and nine are really where we start to see those arrests happen. It's not a bad thing and people can do it. Right. I yeah. also start to say to some of them, if the pain is what's going to keep you from getting the vaginal delivery, and that's what you want for your body and your baby is the vaginal delivery, then let's actually talk about just laboring at home yeah, until it feels unsafe or it's not really what you want to do. And then we go in yes, and we get you set up with your epidural mm-hmm. and we get you in, of course, good doula, especially with sexual trauma history. Yeah. Good doula support. Okay. And you're good to go. And I'll come right back to you the next day. Uh, Cause yes. I, even if my clients go in, cause I'll, I'll take care of clients that do home birth, but I'll take care of clients who have to have cesareans and I'll do their postpartum care. Mm-hmm. I'll come see you the day after you get home. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, that was like tangent probably, but <laughs> no, I, I, that's yeah. so perfect because mental health is so underrated when it comes to talking about what is the best birth scenario you know it there's there's a lot to be said for you know what's my opinion what's important to me and there's a lot to be said for trauma situations and why are these things important to me and what's really the best course of action for me holistically when I'm looking at my my future birth absolutely especially once you've incurred any trauma in past birth right The big thing is, is trauma typically is a loss of control. It's a loss of choice, a loss of control. Mm -hmm. Trauma isn't for in the birth situations for a lot of people. Trauma is, is that loss of choice, not necessarily that a specific thing happened. Yeah. You can have beautifully non-traumatic Mm C-sections. You can have traumatic home births. Yeah. You And so it's really about like how in orientation does the client, the person, the mom, the, the, the birther of any, you know, how do they feel in orientation to their support team, to the ecology of their location of service, to their choices? How empowered do they feel that actually whoever's supporting them really has that, yeah. that on focus, not evidence that informs, but may not be applicable as we yeah. see often. Right. Um, but that really holds them in the center and says, you know what? Like, cause we get some fun requests, it, like because home birth is so big up here, we get some really fun requests. Yeah. The, uh, my business partner, Jen Hoadley, she, um, with our other business, she got called to a birth once, um, wearing, and she, and the dad was wearing a horse head and it was like a metal birth, like metal, like okay. heavy metal <laughs> music, water birth. And it was awesome. She's been called in Halloween costume to births, right? <laughs> um, I wear typically scrubs, but it's pretty fun. The kind of the fun people you can get. Yeah. I'm going to, you know, that really see it as a, it's a, it's family. It's ritual up here. It's sacred, uh-huh. you know, right. You want a peace on earth begins with birth and death coming home. Mm-hmm. If we bring birth and death back home, we're going to see a lot more peace because it pulls everyone back into the cycle of life. Yeah. That's a great perspective. Yeah. Also metal birth. That sounds so invigorating. You know, you 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 hear a lot of this like peaceful music, you know, your essential Mm. oils and that's great. But if you're in a different headspace, (laughs) my favorite are like the sublime Rastafari, um, 
like SoCal punk kind of music. I'll, I get really dead because it has such, especially for like a good seven centimeters, like right before transition, it's kind of this lovely music that people can labor dance with. It's cute. <laughs> That's glorious. take just a moment here to pause the interview and play a few clips from Jessica's birth videos. Um, I did cut a little bit out of the middle because the video itself is about eight minutes long, but it does start right at the beginning and goes all the way through the resuscitation of her baby girl and all the way into those glorious baby cries. Over there, you need to hand it to me, please. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, Jess, can you breathe through me? Yeah. 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 Ye
Come on, sweet baby. Talk to her, Jess. Come on, baby. Later. Come here, princess. Come on, baby. Leave me her eight. Oh, yeah, she's good. Come on, princess. Grab her feet. Come on, baby. Come on. Come on. Come on, baby. Come on, baby girl. There yes. Yes. He's so upset. He's so upset. He's so upset. Come on. Let me get this. actually switch gears if you want a little bit or I can tie up you know the yeah. bird stuff anymore if you'd like no let's let's switch gears I want to hear what you have to say okay mm. you know um I think this is a great time for us like my question to you Megan would be what has your experience been with working in birth with working in birth like yeah so I decided I wanted to be a midwife I started looking into classes, nursing school, um, apprenticeship, trying to figure out what route I wanted to go down. And so one of the very first things that I did is I live very near Vanderbilt and they have a good mid midwifery clinic here. So I went and did their doula training program and it was wonderful. And I cut my t-shirt and I got my little supply bag and I got on the calendar and never once was able to attend a live birth in that whole thing. Oh no. Um, it, it was just due to a, a series of events. I was recently divorced at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I was having nights on and off with my, my son at the time. Um, so just the way the scheduling was working out, my day job, I was, I was limited in how much time I could actually devote to that. And no one ever called while I was on the calendar. And at some point I had to stop doing that. Um, so at that point, I had to basically give up on my doula certification because I couldn't get the live birth hours that I was really depending on um, being able to get from that program. Um, and then, you know, a few years down the road, my new husband and I are talking about career plans. And I said, you know, this is really something that I, I want to get back into. Um, and I started looking at schools again, but again, it was going to be this whole situation where it's a second career for me. I was going to have to quit my job and go to school and decided that at that time, it was a better route for me to focus on maybe growing our family, being a mother and looking into birth work later in life. Um, and so 
I mean, at that point, I have done so much research. <laughs> I've now had two births. Um, and I have no outlet for that. So that is kind of the birth of this podcast. A friend of mine and I used to, you know, we would go out, have a few drinks and then really get to talking about each other's labors. And she said one day, you know, it would be hilarious if we did, you know, like drunk history, but got moms drunk and then asked them about their labors. And I was like, okay. Love this concept, but effectively, <laughs> it, it's hard to get people to be like, "Oh yes, that's what I want to do." Um, I'm surprised. I'm surprised you don't have like a whole wino moms like you know session. That would be pretty hilarious. Oh, it it would, would be fantastic it. if you know anyone yeah. who wants to have a bottle. <laughs> me. I would I would love that. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's kind of where I'm at right now. I think um, I do want to get back into probably doula training again um but in the meantime probably looking at small babies so um yeah not, not really in the cards for me at this moment mm. yeah you know I only bring it up because you know I also came to midwifery as a second career um mm-hmm. I started my I wanted to start it for years um beforehand mm-hmm. but I didn't start my midwifery path until I was almost 33 I was at the end of my 32nd year and I had spent years before that, like battling that second career. Mm-hmm. How do you fund education in your thirties? And what do yeah. I mean by that is we're not talking just, I mean, and the question regarding midwifery funding is a whole nother thing. I'm talking about the personal, yeah. the deep personal aspect of how do you fund pursuing a like pursuing a whole new track mm-hmm. that would inspire and provide how do you how do you how do you take the time out of this decade this fruitful decade of your life right for me like this 30s and then how do you make it worth it right when I went down my path of midwifery I was looking at nurse midwifery I was I had an undergraduate degree in biology and natural sciences so I was like what would it take to convert that to nursing yeah and then go from that into nurse midwifery and they're like just about eight years, six figures in student loans. And, you know, just don't make money Yeah, for eight years. Find some other way to support yourself. (laughs) But be a full-time student. Yes. Yeah. And it was one of those, as somebody who was able to pay off the last part of her college, like at the end of college, the concept of ever taking extensive debt starting in my thirties for a second career especially a contentious second career, quite honestly. You know, what's intriguing, a lot of people don't know this, but nurse midwives make less than nurses most often. And nurse midwives are advanced practice practitioners, right? Yeah. APRNs, advanced practice registered nurses. They have master's degrees. But almost every nurse midwife I know, when they became nurse midwives, they took up to 30 plus percent pay cuts because they were losing differentials and charge status and all sorts of stuff. And then funding for nurse midwives in certain areas, jobs for nurse midwives. Now, nurse midwifery is cool Mm -hmm. because there is a little bit more clout to it in the American healthcare system. But I could not in my, for me, I didn't know how to make that kind of economic choice seem ethical for what my family needed. And so- I started to look into professional midwifery, right? The certified professional midwife route, the direct entry licensed midwife, the non-nursing midwifery path. Um, And um, 
And that became, it was really interesting. It was like, when I finally made the choice um, to do this, it took less than 10 weeks for it to start, which is kind of like when you know timing's working out because there's no other way that I could have made this happen, right? Like yeah. that, that, because the logic of midwifery is not there yeah. in the United States. Like it is not, I, I ethically cannot recommend licensure pathways in certain states. I can't ethically recommend, I mean, do I ethically recommend midwifery as a very valuable sacred skill set that every community should have? Yeah. Yes. Can I recommend it as a good career choice for women, depending on where you live? Absolutely not. Yeah. Right. And so even making that choice on my own with the two cents of knowledge I had about the world of community birth when I was just entering it, right. was like, okay, but I could do this in three years. Yeah. Right. Okay. Three years without income. Okay. Right. It yeah. was a way bigger pill than I've ever had to swallow. Right. Like my husband and I doing some balance transfers and 401k loans and just like, yeah. Oh my God. Cause I was a server before then making like 35 an hour. Yeah. Right. When I got my undergraduate degree, this is the real kicker, right? When I got my undergraduate degree and I was considering medical school, I was looking at a job at the university while I was considering that. And the university was like, oh yeah, we'll pay you 1250 an hour to work in one of our labs. I was making hundreds of dollars a night. Yeah. Hundreds of dollars a night. I could not at that point consider with my academic career taking an economic backslide like that, right? Yeah. And then it was like the funding. So all anyway, so obviously didn't go to medical school, but thankfully <laughs> with wife more. Um, but it was, so I like that you bring it up because I think one thing that I can provide listeners here is that there's a real honest talk that has to be had about um, birth in America. We're already yeah. having that talk on many platforms, but a lot of outlet doesn't get given to women like you where it really is heartbreaking. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking that all of these other factors have to actually, that they, that they stand in the way from someone who feels called to serve actually serving. Yeah. And it, it's, it's almost like we've come into an outsourcing in like upside down investment mm -hmm. in birth in America in that way because we have indoctrinated away community models. We take people out of their communities to educate them and then expect by bringing them back in to practice power with models when they have not been given that um, in their power over education and indoctrination and standards of care practice, Yeah. right? And, and what happens is because of that, it's decentralized the people who really can serve and yeah. who want to, right? And so that, of course, is why as a midwife, I worked with another nurse midwife and we founded the Pacific Birth Institute. I founded a birth institute to start creating the infrastructure and the education and access points for people who want to work in birth, but cannot commit to 24 seven doula and midwife lifestyles. Um, and it's about, for me, getting over the heartbreak, getting people a way to work in birth or like you getting to create podcasts, right? Because it's not, we don't even need that. I don't need it just as an outlet for you. I need people backing me up at birth, right? Like I need people who want to serve in all capacity, mm. not a hundred percent of their life, not in spite of them having kids, not yeah. in this disgustingly overcapitalized system that we've done to maternity care and those who serve it. 
I actually need everyone in every community who wants to serve as a teen doula, mm -hmm. as a as you know a bereavement doula, as a birth assistant, as a midwife, as a star counselor. I need them all to be able to access those roles, show up, be paid in a way that does help them grow their lifestyle, even by strategically growing their skill sets as they decide their path. These are the changes that have to happen on community levels for the normal birth concept, the normal, the real normalcy of home birth, birth center birth, actually that one in three babies don't have to be cut out. Yeah. Right. Like that's actually not normal. Actually, it's about 13% is medical necessity. Yeah. So it's about actually rectifying some of those numbers. Right. And how do we do it? I look at you and I say, I trust you. I actually trust you. I trust everyone in my community who feels called to birth. Cause I can tell you right now, there are people who do not yeah. feel called to birth. And you know, my husband's one of them. Mm -hmm. My husband <laughs> wants nothing to do with it. He's pretty, he's pretty savvy, you know, being married to a midwife. He can hear things and he knows birth a lot now, Yeah. but he wants nothing to do with it. I want nothing to do with coding. Yeah. Just computer shit. I don't know. <laughs> and so it's this concept that we create all these power over structures of access, right? Well, if you can just get into this college, if you can just do this, if you can just pretty much figure out childcare for the rest of your life, you can be on call all the time. Yeah. If you, you know, these, if you can sacrifice one more thing, one more thing to meet this system where it's at, then mm -hmm. you're good enough to serve. Well, that system isn't serving anyone. Yeah. If the access points to be of service are closed. And so this is gate-kept education, right? I mean, if the United States really wanted to follow the data, they would be heavily investing in the hyper-accelerated education of non-white providers right now in every area. They would be opening birth centers in every town across the country without these. Got to be near a hospital. Well, we're losing 100 hospitals a year right now. So I don't know what you're talking about. If we're closing 100 hospitals a year across the United States right now, and we are tying birth centers to only being opened within a half hour of a hospital, are mm -hmm. we serving the, what are we doing, right? How are we centering those who need it? Yeah. And so with Pacific Birth Institute, it's about coming at it from, you have power over, you have power, um, powerless, or, you know, this inversion of this power over, and then it flips, and then you've got regeneration. And regeneration is this, we're actually not separate. Like yeah. we need to center those who are not being centered as soon as, as much as possible. We need to be centering resources in this contextual way. We need to be networking resources so that Megan can have her podcast and also be a part-time doula in a collective that serves where yeah. she feels good, right? Where she can birth assist, right? For midwives four nights a month. Yeah. Four nights a month if she wants, right? And so with the Pacific Birth Institute, we created the professional birth assistant program specifically for that. It's a 60-hour online education program that you can be a you can be a high school grad or not. Honestly, we make it, we break it all the way down to the foundational knowledge of anatomy and physiology and pregnancy, all the way through the routine and complication care management techniques utilized in the by midwives in the community birth setting. Yeah. Because like OBs need nurses to do their job, midwives need birth assistants. Yeah. And what we're not keeping up with in this nation right now is the fact that we have more OBs retiring than coming in. Mm 
-hmm. We have licensure press for midwives in certain areas, but not at the level of emergency order so that we can actually start serving now. Right. Yeah. And then we have litigation issues on all of that. Oh my gosh. Where we really, yeah. Where it's very dangerous to be an OB even. Yeah. It's very dangerous to work in maternity care right now. Mm -hmm. And so it's about identifying, well, okay, but we have more people going into unassisted birth every year. Mm -hmm. So I don't care if you want to double down on destruction and say, well, they just shouldn't, they should just get induced at 39 weeks. Like everybody, it's just safer. More babies don't die. If we induce everyone at 39 weeks, I'm like, you're really doubling down on not understanding the sovereignty issue here. Aren't yeah. You? And the actual access issues, mm -hmm. right? In the state of Alaska, you know, I'm trained in VBAC, VBAC breach and twins. In the state of Alaska, I cannot practice VBAC breach and twins. How many calls for consult do you think I get on average for VBAC? I have no idea. One in three. One in three of my consult calls, I have a previous cesarean. Of course you do. Because mm -hmm. one in three births result in cesarean. So of right. course you do. Yeah. Of course you do. Now we know that somebody that wants to attempt to have a vaginal delivery after cesarean, right? Mm -hmm. Best odds is if we can, if they want it, they have to desire it. Otherwise mm -hmm. don't even try to trial a labor. If you don't want it, get another cesarean. It's okay. Yeah, walk but away. if you want it, go for it, right? Mm -hmm. Find a VBAC supportive provider, right? Who are the most VBAC supportive providers? Midwives. <laughs> the, the, the vaginal physiologic birth providers that, sh that, that do this for a living. Yeah, exactly. And so it's this, so I'm on my license by my board that's that is created for safety, right? Now that's always fun. Yeah. My public board that's created for public safety limits, it restricts my practice, restricts my licensure trade in the state of Alaska, prohibiting me from serving and reducing public cost, mm -hmm. increasing best outcomes. Yeah. All because why? because we have a board for public safety that who is even at, what are we talking about? Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's so intriguing where we're at right now because bringing education and access to people is actually going to be butting up against a lot of these systems that we keep bowing down to and saying, but why? Yeah. Is it working or are we doubling down on something that doesn't actually work and right. we need to pull back and we need to start looking at specific ask, like specific things in our communities differently. Yeah. And so, but the big, the bigger thing is, is, you know, when we, at, when we, when people ask us, why did you create a birth institute and a birth assistant training? And I was like, you know who we created it for? Our clients. Yeah. All of our clients that looked at us and said, I would love to do this, but my husband works on the slope. Mm -hmm. I would love to do this, but I couldn't afford childcare. Yeah. I would love to do this. I would love to work in birth. People we know would be fantastic birth workers. Fantastic. We need them, right? Yeah. They they could not consider midwifery. Yeah. They Or they didn't even want to. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Some people don't want to be primary care providers, right? We need to be looking at this, this breaking open of mm -hmm. how we serve, right? OBs aren't the only providers. We also have right. OBs and nurse midwives and general practitioners and, you know, professional midwives. We have all these things. And it's that, yeah, so in community birth, we have a lot of roles to fill. 
Mm -hmm. I need professional birth assistants that are like medical assistants, right? Mm -hmm. That aren't just doulas that are supporting the client. They're my doula. They're the ones charting for me, getting vitals for me, right? So we train our birth assistants specifically in, it's good for student midwives too, but in the medications of community birth, how to put in IVs, right? How to help release shoulder dystocia, like stuck babies, how to shut down postpartum hemorrhage, right? By manual compression. Because in Alaska, and now, and I'm going to be straight up honest, it's always been this way in Alaska, so we know it well, but the rest of the United States is going to see it. Mm-hmm. It's, good, it's a rural desert for maternity care providers, meaning when I go to a birth, I need anyone who is working with me to mm-hmm. know hands-on what I know hands-on. Do I need my birth assistant to be able to say, well, this client maybe had some intrahepatic coleostasis at this point? No. <laughs> no. But I do need people who want me to call them. They want to be on a call schedule, right? I do need people who want me to call them and say, yeah, you want to go to a birth with me? Hell yeah, there are birth junkies everywhere. There are people who literally only want to do that. They just want to go to birth. They don't want to do clinical. Mm -hmm. They don't want to do the primary decision-making and the the looking in between the lines and reading the blood work, right? To see, oh, maybe she does need follow-up. They just want to go to birth, Yeah. right? There are doulas out there who like dueling, but they don't like the five weeks of being on call. Heard. Yeah. Heard. yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's about opening up those access points. So birth assistance, right? More doulas, more social work involved in maternity care as well. Really getting into that. Newborn care, lactation, right? Pediatrics, a lot of that getting linked in. Um, so I love seeing all the different things people are doing, right? Like I love all the different programs because people are like, Oh, is this a certification program? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, what board certifies it? Me. <laughs> <laughs> because I mean, at this point, according to who? Yeah. We have to stop asking that question. Do you have something to give? Because I got to tell you, we need it. Yeah. All of us need it. Or yeah. Or we have black women dying four times as often. Yeah. Or we continue to have babies dying three to four times as often in the first year for the not culturally matched in care provider. Yeah. We need everyone from every walk of life to walk right on in right now. And we need to fund it. And we need to figure out how to do that in a way that we can fund it. We can get upward mobility for certain birth workers specifically that want to start as birth assistants, but want to become student midwives. How do we fund that? Right. So my passion with Pacific Birth Institute is all the development. So as much as we've created a birth assistant program, which is awesome. And we have Students, we've piloted it with lots of students. We've got students in what, four different countries, 22 states. We love it. Um, it's actually the bigger social aspect of what we're doing that fuels me because it's the restitution of the sacred arts of birth back into the community right now, back to the community members in a way. Because in, the one big thing about our program that we love is this is the most evidence-informed stuff we know for the skills of people not dying in labor, mm-hmm. right? But the big thing we focus on also is that the cultural relevance of how care is provided in the childbearing cycle mm-hmm. in that culture has nothing to do with us. Yeah, It has to do with the culture and it has yeah. to do with the people of that culture. And we need to start respecting that a lot more in maternity care in general um, so that we're not continually telling all the bad birth stories and expecting people to pick them up, right? like, well, we can help you with this. And also when it comes to specific communities and how they deliver, right. Um, they need to be in charge of what that care provision really looks like. Yeah. Right. 
because certain Christian scientists, right, are not going to use specific drugs. Yeah. And when I have them as clients, I'm making we together as mm -hmm. midwife, as a, I'm a sovereign being that mm -hmm. gets my choice and they're a sovereign being who gets their choice. We get to navigate the, if you're bleeding and I can't get you to stop, what do you want to do? Yeah. I'm not going to tell her I have to shoot her full of Pitocin. Yeah. Now I have to make the decision. Do I legally want to have to defend myself? Yeah. I don't. Sovereignty on both sides. Yeah. But it's also that if we actually respected culture more, this mm -hmm. would be an in-house thing. It would not actually be a, well, did she do what, did the midwife do what she's supposed to? Yeah, I did. I listened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did. I did my entire job. Yeah. But in America, you like to put productivity, mm -hmm. profit, and distinct results and distinct modicums of care mm -hmm. over sovereignty, autonomy, and the ability for shared decision-making to trump evidence. Yeah. And be, and be upheld in court. Yeah. Right? So a lot of this is about people coming back into birth in a way that works for them, because if we keep trying to do it in a way that doesn't, we're going to break birth. Yeah. I don't want to say it that way, but I do, because you can't keep saying, well, midwives just need to meet midwives just need to be meek accredited. Midwives just need to be licensed. Midwives just need to do these things. And it's like, no, we have the great data. Midwives keep on doing whatever you want. Yeah. Integration data sucks. And actually in integrated systems mm -hmm. where hospitals recognize midwives, receive transports with ease. Mm -hmm. The outcomes for baby and mom at home, birth center, or the hospital are the exact same. That's incredible. In communities where the hospitals do not accept transfer from midwives or there's hostility, moms die three times as often. That's not a midwife's fault. Yeah. That's a transfer. That's an integration fault. Yeah. And it is, all, it is the onus of the larger system that is more heavily funded to increase education or integration based on this data if they want to call themselves data informed. Otherwise, they're profit driven and they can shut the fuck up. Excuse yeah. Me. No, I, <laughs> I mean, it, in the United States, that is the model of care. What is our insurance liability? How can we make money off of this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's this multi-pronged approach that all of us, we can't get upset. We can't get mad. I mean, I can get feisty about it, but it's the do what you can with what you have and the time you have and the space you are, right? That beautiful quote from that young, the young man, I forget his name now, but there was a beautiful quote where the young man that died of AIDS, but he really impacted the world before yeah. he did. Yeah. He said that, you know, do all you can with what you have and the time you have and the space you are, do all you can. Yeah. And I feel like the community birth resurgence is a regenerative paradigm resurgence. It is this, uh, we have to trust each other. Yes, you can. We each can. It's, I mean, we're midwifing midwifery, honestly, in that sense, right? We're midwifing birth. Yes, we can. We can have better outcomes. You're yeah. already doing it. We're already serving. So we're going to start serving in a way that honors the people. We're going to center the people we're serving. We're mm -hmm. not going to center data that does not apply to them, right? Yeah. We're not going to center because that's the big thing as a midwife, you have to recognize 
Being evidence-informed means when I talk to clients that are not white, not hetero, not cis, and not at least a bachelor's degree of education or higher, most maternity care data does not apply to them. Yeah. So when I say to you, hey, this is active management or expected management, or this is an informed consent decision we have to make together, like I have to talk to you about, half of this fucking talk I'm going to give you is uh, this doesn't possibly apply to you at all and we're shooting blind because we haven't centered anyone but those demographics to research. Mm -hmm. So I actually am going to be drowning you in whiteness with this data if I'm not careful. Yeah. In fact, because I don't have better data, I could, I could mess up your odds if I say this too factually and don't actually state to you, yeah. this is not applicable potentially for you. Yeah. This is all we have though. You know, and so it's really being aware of we can't keep parroting systems that um, double down on destructive outcomes yeah. and that are then trying to create sustainable systems inside of them that are not actually they're not aren't that aren't actually tackling root cause, which mm -hmm. is how are we funding community based providers? How are we funding um, maternity care in general? at this point, because if we're losing hospitals at 100 a year, and we're experiencing up to 50% of the United States now going into maternity care desert status, mm. what's our plan? Yeah. So I'm going to do what I can. Like Jen and I, my business partner, we're going to create a birth institute. We're going to train a lot of people so that if you are in the middle of nowhere yeah, and you have no drugs, no nothing, you mm. know how to grab a uterus and stop it from yeah. bleeding. You know how to help a baby get a posterior arm unstuck, hopefully with least incidence of issue, like yeah. of actual breaks, right? We hope that we can help people because something has to be done. Yeah. And right now, this like not being able to deliver breach. Well, mm -hmm. no, there's only one OB in the state of Alaska that will. So you're telling uh, me that you're going to restrict 37 midwives who are trained in it from providing vaginal breach delivery. And you only have one OB and you're going to call that safe. Yeah. No more. Yeah. No more because it's already happening. We have people leaving hospital systems and they're leaving midwifery systems because they're being told what they can and can't do instead of being supported by providers who do want to meet them where they're at. And it's just as much on the provider to make sure that they feel safe in what they're providing. Right. I don't deliver twins. I don't want to. I just yeah. got my license in 2018. I go to twin deliveries. They're awesome. I'll back them up. But I'm like, I don't want to be in charge of two babies. That's a lot. <laughs> so it's that, it's that understanding and that sovereignty and respect that starts to happen when you can look at each other and say, no, I do. I trust you. Yeah. I trust you as a mom. I trust you as a birth assistant. I trust you to know yourself. I trust you to know how you want to serve. But that yeah. wax, that's a wax poetic statement. If we keep saying, oh, you can be whatever you want, but make sure you don't get kicked out of your house you're probably not gonna be able to afford your house. So don't yeah. be what you want Yeah, because your house is more important. So it's this, it's the, the get the, we get into the social political of it because how can you not? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, well, and it's, I, I think what I'm hoping to, to kind of tackle with this podcast is the average American mom does not understand that these are actual options. They hear, I'm in labor. I'm going to go to a hospital. I'm going to have an epidural. My baby is going to come out. End of list. And that is how I had my first baby. 
I had no idea I had other options. Now, whether or not I find out, hey, I have other options and this is still what I want, okay. But this needs to become the standard where we look down the list and say, these are all the things that I could potentially have. Why am I not able to access them? Yeah. And, and, and you know, and I will say this, like things for your listeners to know as pregnant clients, right? As pregnant people, as moms, is you have the most power to change everything. Yeah. Midwives don't, OBs don't. It's consumers and insurance consumers specifically who are going to make the biggest change this generation. It's yeah. going to be economic incentive. And so when I have, when you have people listening, so if you're listening to her podcast now, know this, if your insurance says to you, we're not going to cover that. Mm -hmm. Why not? Why not? You hammer them. Mm -hmm. You hammer them. Why not? But this outcome here is not as good as this outcome. This is my safest thing and it's provided. Why aren't you covering it? Yeah. Right. You, it's really about um, consumers and the insurance market driving the conversation we kept thinking it was lobbies. And I mean, AMA has got the largest lobby and they're going to always do what they are going to do in the community birth world, in the safe birth, healthy birth. Like we're trying to get more autonomy and rights and access for all types of birth out there. It's going to be driven by people who write in on behalf of midwives for any legislative action, keep track of any of the birth bills going in, going on. Yeah. in their area, right? Alaska right now, we had Senate and House bills going in for our midwifery practice, right? We put out big posts to our um, our clientele, right? On our webs, our, our Facebooks and stuff like that, right? So staying in line, staying up to date with what's happening near you. And if that's too much and too overwhelming, not taking shit from your insurance. Yeah. Oh, you're just going to make me pay my midwife this much more because they're not in network. Yeah. Um, but if I go to the hospital, it will be covered. I'm going to need an in-network exception because the hospital can't provide midwifery model of care. Oh, they have midwives. See, yeah, in a hospital, you would provide midwifery model of care, except for you got to like make sure and dot all the I's and cross all the T's of the bureaucracy of the hospital, which seems to somehow always trump hmm? my provider's autonomy and ability to provide midwifery model of care. Yeah. So yeah. I want a community provider where they're not having to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's safer. That's where my better outcomes come. So yeah. I'm going to need you guys to give me an in-network exception. That's the kind of stuff I say is hammer your insurance. Do not let them make you pay more. You get the in-network exceptions based on data. Look up the data if you need, right? Yeah. Send it in. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's incredible advice. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, I just, as somebody who, had, you know, now is a midwife, it's if I call to get payment, do you think they want to pay me versus if one of my clients calls and says, why haven't you paid my midwife yet? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. No, I get paid a lot quicker if the client calls. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. So what would you say would be your number one piece of advice for expectant moms? Okay. Um, mm, body work in the third trimester. Yeah. So making sure you have good pelvic balance. So looking at spinning babies, you can do that online. Um, like that's the Gail Tully. She's awesome. I have my clients start doing that at 28 weeks, her four, her fantastic four or her three sisters. Mm -hmm. um, if you're a first time mom, so I would start doing that because it's really good connection with your partner as well for labor. 
Um, I recommend that, um, but chiropractic starting at 36 weeks for pelvic balance, because labor is a, is a combination of forces, right? So you've got to have a balanced pelvis so that you can have a baby sitting in a balanced pelvis in the most flex position possible. So we don't have a malpresented baby, right? So that the power of the uterus is transferred directly down a basement. Everything happens easy peasy. Most first time moms, um, especially athletes, if you're athletic, you're going to want chiropractic towards the end of pregnancy to keep everything open because giving birth is so expansive going through that if you're, if you're really like feeling tight in your pelvis, that tightness can be the hours of labor, Yeah, right? Like that to work through, oh, I've got really tight sacrotuberous ligaments because I'm this kind of athlete or whatever, right? It's like, okay, at, like if you're not doing chiropractic before, at least by 36 weeks, get in there. It's going to save you hours in labor. That's what I'll say. It'll save you hours in labor to have a balanced pelvis. Yeah. Um, uh, when it comes to, don't worry about the baby. Don't worry about the birth. That's all I ever want to say. I don't give a fuck about the birth. Babies come out. Okay. Yeah. No matter where it happens, no matter how it happens, they come out. Who's going to take care of you after that's what matters. Yeah. Who will come and cook for you? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'll be fine. No, it's not that you will be fine. Yes, of course. You're a strong bitch. I know we know who's going to cook for you so that you can receive so that you can give milk. Mm -hmm. Women are so used to manufacturing like worth and productivity in their own life and keeping that cycle going for themselves. That motherhood kicks them in the fucking face, right? Pow. Like all of a sudden now you're just as worthy. We need you. And everything is shifting because you need to be able to receive Mm-hmm. to give uh-huh. easily because what is the one thing that in the first year you hear from women oh I felt so crappy about how much milk I couldn't I tried breastfeeding but I failed at it oh my god these words right the word choice it's so intense yeah. right the intense feelings of guilt and shame and like uh-huh. just to get ahead of that you need to fill your cup to overflow like yeah. I, I can't stress that enough if you don't like to take walks on your own to like burn steam or punch a pillow or yell in your car or whatever, start figuring it out and doing it now. Babies don't teach you emotional intelligence, right? Like having a newborn doesn't make it easier to self-regulate and soothe when you need to and mother yourself, right? So self-soothing techniques, setting yourself up for a really good postpartum, right? These are big things that yeah. I, babies come out. Don't worry about your birth plan. You know, when you choose a provider, you know, your birth plan. Yeah. I, that's what I really want people to understand. Your choice of provider is your birth plan. Yes. Your provider is more correlated to you having a C-section than even location of birth now. Yes. Even location of birth, who you choose as your provider is more correlated with it. When you choose your provider, you choose your birth plan. So choose wisely. Yeah. The more your birth provider looks like you, likes things you like, is from where you're from, is part of your community, the better outcome, the more correlation between you and your provider on any level, religion, uh, movies you like, you're both athletes. I'm talking like cultural match is not just about race, cultural matches. The more like you are your provider, the more their best interests are your best interests and the more they're going to take care of them instinctually. So this is when I say that, I'm like, you can pick anyone you want, but the data shows that. 
Yeah. Very clearly. So make cultural match, but yeah, otherwise get somebody to make you food on the other end. <laughs> That's what really matters. How can you relax and make milk for like four weeks straight? If you can yes. get four weeks of coverage for your food and you can just relax and make milk and pretend, to, well, just no times, time's not real anyways, but really no time's not real in that first month, the better outcome you will have for sure. That's awesome. Oh, thank you so much for having me today, Megan. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Man, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate everything that you're doing and everything you had to say. I appreciate what you're doing. Thank you for keep doing this, right? Just keep spreading the word. I love, I love that you're getting normal birth out there. Thank you so much, Jessica. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Normal Birth Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or are interested in being on the show, please send me an email to normalbirthpod at gmail.com.